Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here today. At some point over the next month or so, you will probably find yourself at a family member's house, a friend's house, gathered around a meal, trying to awkwardly make small talk or maintain a conversation with somebody who you might not really know all that well. And so one of the questions you may ask as you try to initiate this conversation is, so how's your health? How's your health? Well, in our current sermon series, we're checking in on our church's health with guidance from the Apostle Paul's letter to Titus. Paul had left Titus on the island of Crete to help the church there get into shape. And as we saw in chapter 1, Titus's first priority was the church's leadership. Paul instructed Titus to appoint elders who are above reproach, able to teach sound doctrine, and willing to address false doctrine. Godly, capable, and courageous leaders can both prevent the infection of false teaching before it arises and address the illness if it's already there. And if you're curious, we need godly, capable, and courageous leaders in our churches today just as much as they were needed back then. But this morning, as we move from chapter 1 to chapter 2, Paul expands his focus to other people within the church. Last week, we saw the kind of maturity, the kind of character, the kind of godliness that we should expect from elders, both in their public and their private lives. But this week, we learned that a healthy church doesn't just have godly leaders. It's made up of godly people from every walk of life. That includes the old, the young, men, women, slaves, and free. Paul tells Titus what kind of godly lives we are all called to lead and why our godly lives matter so much to the church's well-being. So open up to Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Feel free to use a Bible here if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we go further, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. Thank you for the people who make Sunday morning possible, Uh, whether it's someone getting here early and turning on lights and unlocking doors, or whether it's someone teaching in a classroom, uh, or the person who printed out the bulletins on Friday or the security person wandering around the building in the parking lot, making sure that we're safe. Uh, Thank you for the people who make Sunday morning possible. Uh, I pray this morning would be honoring to you. That we wouldn't just come here because it's what we do on Sunday mornings. Uh, We wouldn't just come here out of mere habit um, or even empty ritual. But that we would come here week in and week out, recognizing the importance of Sunday morning and the privilege that we have of being in your presence on Sunday morning with our siblings in Christ. Uh, We can be in your presence through prayer, through your word, any time of the week, uh, anywhere we are, but there is something significant about Sunday morning. And so I pray that this Sunday morning here and Sunday mornings in other churches down the street or across the world, 
that these services would be honoring to you. And Lord, help us be attentive to your word that you have given us, that is timeless, that is living and active, that is authoritative and perfect. Uh, Lord, help us receive your word, submit to your word, and apply your word in our everyday lives. And thank you for your son, Jesus, who we remember every single Sunday morning at communion. If nothing else, we remember Christ's broken body and shed blood at communion. Lord, thank you that our sins are forgiven. Thank you that we are adopted into your family, that we are justified, that you say we're righteous. Uh, Lord, help us live up to what you say about us by the power of your spirit. Again, thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for these people, this place, this morning. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's start with Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now before we get to the main body of these verses, don't neglect the content of verse 1. The phrase that Paul uses to start this chapter, but as for you, sets a strong contrast between what Titus is called to do and to be, compared to the false teachers at the end of chapter 1 from last week. They undermined the sufficiency of Christ's death and resurrection for salvation through what they taught. On top of that, they operated with poor, selfish motives. And finally, they lived ungodly and hypocritical lives. So Paul tells Titus to do the opposite. Don't be like them. He is to teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's the sufficiency of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. He's to do it not with self-serving motives the way they did, but for God's glory and the church's good. And Titus is to teach not only with his words, but with his actions. It's worth mentioning that while sound or healthy doctrine surely includes good theology, what we believe, that's not the end of it. Look at the way that Paul flows from sound doctrine into sound living. 
He doesn't start talking about theological debates. He doesn't immediately start talking about statements of faith. All that stuff is crucial. But Paul sees no problem going straight from according with sound doctrine into sound living. As these following verses show us, a healthy church is characterized by more than just holding the right beliefs. A healthy church is characterized by people like us living righteous lives. That's why he tells Titus to focus his attention on five specific groups of people. Apparently, if he does this, Titus will cover just about everyone in the church. So group one is older men, which by ancient standards is probably 50 and up. I'm just the messenger. Sorry if you don't like that breakdown. But if there's one word to describe Paul's expectation of these older men, it might be virtuous. Rather than being cast off as outdated or obsolete, these older men play an important role in the church's health. They are to set an example for the entire community with their behavior and with their demeanor. And that especially includes setting an example for the younger men. Group two takes us to older women, which by ancient standards was likely over the age of 60. So women, there you go. You have something to celebrate. If there's one word to describe Paul's expectations of older women, it might be wise. Like the virtuous older men, wise older women are an essential part of a healthy church. And also like the older men, these women are to play a significant role in the life of the church, especially through mentoring younger women. And that takes us to group three, those same younger women. If there's one word to describe them, it might be faithful. In a world that placed much more emphasis than we do on women marrying and having children at a young age and staying home, which surely then and still now has its pros and cons, that faithfulness was most often displayed in the context of family and home. Of course, faithfulness to God-given callings. For younger women who are married or single, who have kids or no kids, who work outside of the home or stay at home, whatever your situation looks like, your faithfulness contributes to the overall health of the church. It matters. Group four is younger men. And if there's one word that Paul uses multiple times in this chapter, but especially applies to younger men, it's that word self-controlled. Self-controlled. I can say that applies especially to young men with some level of confidence because I am, in fact, a young man. I have been, I still am, and by ancient standards, I've got a little while to go. And I know how much I need to learn to be self-controlled. Now, Titus may be included in this younger men category as well. In fact, the words apply directly to Titus in verses 7 through 8 
may apply more broadly to younger men in the church. Teach with integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. The more younger men who we have doing that, the better off our church will be. And then finally, that final group, bond servants or slaves. If there's one word Paul uses to describe them, he calls them to be humble. Now, the inclusion of this group may jar us because we rightly find slavery to be a horrific practice. And while we can't get around the fact that the Apostle Paul is no abolitionist in this chapter, it's worth remembering his words elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul encourages slaves to gain their freedom if given the chance. He calls Christian slave owners to treat their believing slaves as equals in Christ. And Paul personally advocates for a runaway slave in his letter to Philemon. And hopefully, this is just a theory, but hopefully, part of the reason Paul does not address slave owners directly in this chapter, the way he does when he wrote earlier books in his career, is that maybe at this point, late in Paul's life, it was becoming harder and harder to find Christian slave owners to begin with. So as we saw last week, godly leaders who can teach sound doctrine matter a great deal to a church's health. But sound doctrine also isn't just about what we believe. As we saw in verse 1, sound teaching leads straight in to sound living. And as we see this morning, it's not just a church's leadership that's called to sound living. So is a church's membership across age, sex, class. We are all called to live godly lives. None of us gets a pass. It's not as though the only people expected to live righteous lives are the elders. It's not like an elder. We're all saved by the same Lord. We're all indwelt by the same spirit. We're all guided by the same word. Thus, we're all called to live godly lives. But if you're still not convinced that this really matters, look at the verses following. Because Paul gives us arguments for why this is so important to a church's health. Come to think of it, Paul has already given us One argument as to why our lives matter so much to our church's health. Maybe you caught it in verses 1 through 10. It pops up three different times. First, chapter 5, verse 5 rather. When Paul is speaking about younger women, he says that they are to be faithful, quote, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 8 When Paul is speaking to the younger men and to Titus, he says, you do all these things. You live this self-controlled, dignified, sound life, quote, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. 
And then look at verse 10, when Paul is addressing slaves. He tells them to live this humble, godly life, quote, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. That word adorn gets at the idea of decorating, making the doctrine look good through the way that you live. So in all three of these verses, Paul is stressing that our lives matter because they lend credibility to our sound teaching. If we want those outside of the church to take the gospel we proclaim seriously, we must lead respectable and even attractive lives. The church's reputation is at stake in Paul's mind. One author once wrote that the church should stick out in the world like a pearl in a puddle. Like a pearl in a puddle. And if our lives look no different from the lives of those who do not believe, if we're caught up in the same sins, consistently falling to the same temptations, and showing no signs of spirit-driven transformation, then we won't be worth noticing. And our teaching won't be worth listening to. We will just blend in to the puddle. Our lives are our best apologetic. They're our best argument. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a place for making biblical, theological, philosophical, and scientific arguments for God's existence, for the truth of the gospel. That all has a place. But perhaps the best argument we can offer is the goodness, the beauty, the joy, the peace that only a life of following Jesus can offer. So that's one reason why our sound lives matters, the church's reputation among non-believers. But a second reason is simply the gospel itself. Picking up in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So the church's reputation is one reason to live a godly life. The second reason, Paul simply says, hey, remember what Jesus did for you? Remember who Christ is? On the cross, Jesus didn't just pay the penalty for our sin. He freed us from sin's domination. The Protestant reformers were fond of calling justification by faith the root of our salvation, and then calling sanctification, which is the ongoing spirit-empowered process of becoming more and more like Jesus, they called that part the fruit 
of our salvation. Root and fruit. If you're walking in your garden and you have planted many vegetables, you've taken great care of them, but there is no fruit present, that raises questions about the root. The same is true of our lives in Christ. The same is true of our church collectively. If there's no fruit of righteousness among us, it raises questions about the health of the root. While we are not saved by our good works, Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we have been saved for good works. Augustine once said that morals and faith are mutually connected. You've got to have both. They go together. One naturally leads to the other. And if the other isn't being produced, then something is wrong. We care not only about sound teaching. We expect sound living. And this comes not just from a church's leaders. It comes from all of its members. And we do this for the sake of our church's reputation among non-believers and as an expression, a response to, a result of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus has promised to do for us. But getting more practical, what might we leave with this morning? First, if we want our church to be healthy, we must understand that the Christian faith is not just something we believe. It's something we practice. Better yet, it's who we are, day in and day out. One theologian writes that our faith is displayed not in acquisition of some special knowledge, not in arriving at peculiar experiences of the divine grace, but in transformation of the daily affairs that fill up everyday living. Our actions at home, at work, at school, in the neighborhood, on the road, even on the internet, our faith shapes all of it. Being a Christian is not just about holding the right stances, giving the right answers, or signing our names at the bottom of the right statement of faith. As important as all of that is, our faith doesn't just engage our heads. It engages our hearts, our words, and our deeds. And while we won't be perfect this side of heaven, the truth remains that God has given us what we need to live out this faith. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us his church. We were made to live God-honoring lives before sin got us off track. And while the problem of sin isn't totally gone quite yet, that will only happen when Christ returns, we have been saved to live God-honoring lives by God's power right now. Doctrine matters, and so does living. On top of that, if we want our church to be healthy, we too must care about our reputation among non-believers. 
you probably wouldn't be shocked to hear that many in our day and age are not just indifferent to the Christian faith. Many hold a low opinion of it. Churches and Christians are sometimes caricatured as arrogant, power-hungry, privileged, bigoted, and out of touch at best, if not downright dangerous at worst. Sadly, some Christians and churches really do deserve that reputation. But as for our church, let's not give the unbelieving world any additional ammo. May we live such beautiful, good, and honorable lives that non-believers have no choice but to take our faith seriously. Let's show the world that there is a better way to live than pursuing the fool's gold of sin. And that better way to live is under Christ's lordship. And third, if we want our church to be healthy... We must recognize that we all play a crucial role in this. You don't have to be an elder or a staff member or have your name and your picture on the church's website or walk around with a name tag for your life to matter to this church's health. Regardless of your age, your sex, your class, your vocation, whatever. You are called to godliness. And your actions matter to the well-being of this church. Even the actions that seem unremarkable or mundane. We are all saints. We are all redeemed by Christ as a people for his own possession. And we are all called to be zealous for good works. Now, like last week, everything we've talked about this morning finds its basis in Christ. Paul says in verse 13 that Jesus is our great God and Savior. And that verse is one of the single strongest statements of Jesus' divine identity in the entire New Testament, calling Jesus our great God and Savior. We live for Christ because Christ lived among us. We live for Christ because Christ died for us. We live for Christ because Christ lives now. And we live for Christ because Christ is coming again. Again, we have been justified by faith. We are being sanctified by God's spirit. So having that root of salvation... May we bear fruit of righteousness so that a watching, unbelieving world might see the truth of the gospel and so that we will be ready when Jesus comes. And if anyone ever asks you, how's your church's health? By all means, keep sound teaching, sound doctrine in mind, but don't forget about sound living. The two go together in a healthy church. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this us that challenges us, that reminds us, that encourages us. Lord, I pray that you would help us live up to the challenge of Titus chapter 2. That we would live the lives you call us to live 
because of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. I pray that we would have that root present, that faith in your life and your death and your resurrection, looking forward to your return, and that from that root would spring forth fruit that others might see our good works and glorify you. Help us be the saints who you say that we are. By faith in Christ, you have called us holy. You call us your children. You call us your servants. You say that we are forgiven. So, Lord, help us live like it. Help us be the righteous people that you see. I pray that those around this church who do not believe would get a good glimpse of how good you are through the way that we live. Through hospitality, through generosity, through humility, through wisdom, through all the traits of of godliness that you call us to display. That you're producing in us through your spirit. I pray that those traits would open hearts and open minds so that people who don't believe in you now would come to believe in you. And that our example, our lives might be one of the things that you use to open those hearts and to open those minds. And Lord, again, remind us day in and day out that this all comes back to Christ. We don't live godly lives just because it's the right thing to do. We don't live godly lives for accolades. We don't live godly lives just so that we can get titles or positions in churches. And we certainly don't live godly lives to impress you or somehow earn, repay, or gain our salvation through our efforts. Rather, we live godly lives because of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. Remind us of that. Help us live up to the calling that you've given us with gratitude, with joy, with obedience. Again, we love you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.